Ford dealer Cuff Miller, very well known in the South, celebrating its 70th anniversary. And I'm talking to Mike Turner, who's been, well, been helming the business for quite a number of years now, Mike. Just how many years is it? I actually joined in December 1985. So you can work out from there we're getting on towards 32 years. The business has grown steadily during that time. What do you put that down to? I mean, you've seen a lot of big names go to the wall in the past, big four dealers. It's about people. Because at the end of it all, if you don't have the trust of the people, you're never going to make a success of it. We at Cuff Miller have always taken the view that we're in a long-term relationship with people rather than the short-term relationship and maximise the profit out of each person that some of the big dealer groups have gone with. We are proud to be dealing with the grandchildren of people who we dealt with 30 and 40 years ago who were introduced in turn by their parents. I don't think there are too many businesses that can claim that they're multi-generational in that sense. That's quite something. And clearly that's a large part of your business ethics, but... You sort of believe in treating people in a, in a rather special way. You've you've done things, I know, with this business, which are, I, I go against the norm for dealerships. Well, what we try to find are what I call USPs, unique selling propositions. First off, we have got a situation where we have a happy hour on the forecourt. One hour a day, petrol's 2p a litre cheaper, and that attracts customers. We also, when someone has bought a car from us, a year later, when they get their first contact from us after having bought the car, there is a voucher for a meal for two people at a local restaurant. And generally, those are the kind of things, along with the, the bunch of flowers in the boot of every car we sell, which mark us out from the attitude that's taken by some of our competitors. It's about building those relationships. And I know in, in, in a similar way, your servicing side runs some sort of slightly unusual hours and, and seems to want to accommodate people and their lifestyles. Well, we'd like to talk to people and find out what they want and need. There are situations where we're very happy because the customer needs it for us to pick the car up from their home or to lend them a car while their car is being fixed. And we do not look, as some people do, to try and find a way to charge the customer more. It's about value. And as long as the customer believes they've had value one way or another, then they're likely to return to us. And then they're also likely to say to their friends, I had a good deal at Cuff Miller, why don't you try them? It's an old-fashioned concept, word of mouth, isn't it? That rather than spending a vast fortune on advertising, that people can do your advertising for you. It is different, but then again, in the local area here in Aaron, D.C., we have one of the ten oldest databases of customers in the country. Mm. And those are the people who have been brought up in a slightly different generation. Although we do aspire to look after the younger people as well, those people are the base. Well, that reflects the demographics in the area, doesn't it? Yeah. I go back to listening to a Tom Peters track where he's talking about... Yes, the people over 50 have got the money. Yeah, they've got all the money. And there is an opportunity there to look after them properly because they are there and able to spend what they require to spend in order to make sure their car functions as they want it to. There's also, uh, we're of a similar generation, but there's a desire for loyalty. You know, people build relationships and it's, it's not just about what you want in terms of the loyalty of the customer. The customer wants the loyalty of the business as well. It doesn't happen much anymore. No, but we tend to look after our people particularly because half of my people here have been with us over 10 years. 
and three quarters have been with us over five years. And they are part of a team, and we have a system where we pay a quarterly bonus based on whether the company is making a sensible profit or not. We share the pain and we share the gain. And everyone sits down with me in a quarterly meeting so that they know how we're doing on the basis that I share figures with them that don't go outside of the office and they understand where we're trying to lead this business toward. In that sense, it's it's a family business and that's something which is perhaps not that fashionable these days, but it's family businesses, successful ones, that will survive uh, an economic downturn. It is because this business has been going for 70 years But part of it has been that we have been able to get people to join us because they've seen what's going on and people have retired. And recently we had three people who were retired all in the same month. And two out of the three we replaced with people who were already in the company. And the only reason we didn't replace the third one with someone in the company was the lady we had in mind, she had to move to Liverpool. So we had to find someone from outside. But that wasn't a bad thing because we got someone who's very good at it. We've got a generation of youngsters who understand social media and other stuff that's beyond my ken. And I'm very happy that as I contract out of running this business, that there are people to follow on who will look after it and make it even better. We've talked about this business in this location and with this demographic. Let's posit a hypothetical. If you were a MG dealer in a completely different location to this with a more modern building with a completely different set of liabilities, a different demographic. Would your way of doing business transfer across? Or are you hopeful that it would? The bottom line is you have to find out what works in the marketplace where you are. Now, as it happens, I believe that looking after the customers is a crucial way of making sure that you have a future. The fact that it changes every two or three years because in the major metropolises you're getting a new group of people every two or three years because of movement it may have to be done slightly differently but at the end of it all what you must make absolutely sure is that the customers leave you wanting to recommend you to their friends rather than bemoaning the experience they've had and pledging not to repeat it all right let's let's another hypothetical case let's say you were selling washing machines on the high street same business ethic applies? I'm a great believer that it's not price that matters, it's value. And what you add for the customer is what makes the difference. That's what adds value to the transaction and makes the person want to repeat it. Mm. Very good. And may the business long continue in that vein. And I'm sure it will. It's, it's, those relationships are long-term relationships that you've built. Mm. But uh, you mentioned there, and broadening out the conversation slightly, You mentioned there Tom Peters, one of the great management gurus. So many people over the last 20 or 30 years have taken the wrong things from all those management gurus, and they've all taken maximising profit, maximising the bottom line, screw the customer if that's what it takes to to get the bottom line right. The industry has developed a pretty poor reputation. Some of those large groups have gained very poor reputations and lost businesses and and fallen by the wayside. How do you see the sort of industry at present? It's very complex because in order to attract young people into purchasing new cars, there are ways where it appears that cost them very little in order to get into a new car. But then after that, 
they have got to take on board the fact that the mileage they're allowed to do is limited, that they can't get rid of the car if it misbehaves and stuff like that, which is all very well if you've got a dealership that's listening to what you've got to say and if there is an issue, is willing to help you fix it. Hmm. But unfortunately, once someone has taken the car, that's the end of it. I'm sorry, but we won't subscribe to that. We look after our people because we want them to come back. Hmm. And more importantly, we want them to tell their friends so that they come to us as well. One of the things which isn't totally PC, but is absolutely true, is that we have a situation where we have an elderly database, which means we have a predominance of women. Now, if you have a woman and you're trying to get involved in selling a motor car, then you have to have trust, as opposed to most men who worries how much is it, when can I have it, and how much for mine. But the upside of dealing with women is... They talk to each other far more than us blokes do. And so if you look after a woman properly, particularly when very few other people seem to do that, they tell all their friends. And guess what? Their friends come along and want to do business with you too. Makes life so much more sensible. But the other side of that, the industry still has a a bad reputation in terms of dealing with women in the way in which it has treated women. And uh, some dealerships, and you as I I count amongst them, has realised that that's poor business. But a lot of dealerships still, and and you you hear comments in workshops and so on and so on, I think particularly younger car salesmen, just don't understand the women's buying power. Women make those choices in 50 or more percent of car purchases. One of the biggest issues is the dealer principle of a dealership set the budgets the sales manager goes down the stairs and says i've got this budget to hit or i'm not here next week don't be bottom of the sales league table for more than two months in a row otherwise you're going to be gone and that makes an attitude in the sales force which means we will sell at all costs Mm. and that is short term i won't name it but we had a main dealer that operated in worthing and they were very much into that way of doing things they lost a third of a million pounds in each of the last three years they were in this locality and guess what they're no longer with us it's a short-termism very very common amongst large businesses these days and it seems to be worse in the in the larger groups than in the smaller businesses i was standing outside a dealership with our main dealer at one time and we had a new sales manager who as it happens i got on with very well And he said to me one morning as we were standing there, Mike, they do know how to complain down here, don't they? And I said to him, there are three things you need to know. First off, to retire down here, they've had to have a good job, which means they're not stupid. The second is you've got them when you've got them for 15, probably 20 years. And the third is they've got loads of time to talk to each other, so a good or a bad reputation spreads rapidly. Now, you're a Ford dealership. You've been a Ford dealer for... A very long time and I think one of the most successful Ford retail dealers uh, sometimes relationships between dealers and the company can be very difficult I'm not saying that yours is with Ford I'm sure it isn't but generally speaking the relationships between dealers and car makers good bad otherwise let's call them a challenge I was very fortunate because I was the chairman of the National Ford Retail Dealer Association for 12 years, which meant that I got one-on-one relationships with senior people at the Ford Motor Company. And so when we were doing something that didn't tie in with what everyone else was doing, I could at least say to someone who was in a position to do something about it, guys, 
have you looked at this and have you thought that if you impose this upon us, it's not going to work? For various reasons, for example, September is a brilliant month for most dealers. But for us, it's an average month because we're very much into the military market. So our September is mediocre, but our December, when all of the guys come back from the continent, is usually brilliant. And we have to ask for motor company, have you taken into account that the distribution of sales in this dealership isn't necessarily going to be national average? Mm. Sales and, and the financing thereof, we've touched on it a couple of times already, but there are suggestions that the Bank of England is getting concerned about uncontrolled credit uh, within the car market particularly, and he's talking to the government about whether something should be done about that. What's sort of your view of that? Because there was a feeling that there was a, a developing storm based really upon the success of PCPs, and perhaps the credit has been too easy. There are a lot of new cars out on the street at the moment, and a lot of people wonder whether they can actually afford to keep them. We have been in a situation back in 27, 2008, where there was too much unlimited credit. We're now in a situation where interest rates are approaching zero, and this has meant that people can afford to do things, but the total indebtedness of the British public has increased to an alarming extent, which means, for example, let's assume that interest rates, for one reason or another, go up by even half or even 1%. It's going to mean that people's payments on, for example, mortgages are going to go up by an amount, if they're close to the edge now, that's going to push them over. And so one wonders if and when there is any likelihood of an interest rate rise. I mean, there are signs, certainly in the last two months, there's some plateauing off on car sales, and there may be a a decline coming. Yeah, I mean, we recently had the American Central Bank threatening to put interest rates up which caused such a furore in the markets in the States that I think everyone else has been inoculated against doing anything or even talking about doing anything similar. Is this a good time but because of the PCPs, because of the fact the interest rates are low? Is this still a good time to buy a new car? Yes, it is. We have a situation where there are some excellent products available and because of the low interest rates, it's very straightforward to purchase one. One has to be a little bit careful because, for example, on a lot of PCPs, the mileage that a person can carry over the three-year or four-year period is limited to maybe 8,000 miles a year with hefty penalties for doing more than that. And that is something which we have a duty as a retailer to make sure that any customer who wants to buy a car on a PCP understands that Mm. and going to the PCP knowing where we're going with it. Well, we've been fairly gloomy over the last minute or two, but let's let's lighten it slightly. We've used the name Cuffmiller quite a lot in the business sense, but there was a Cuffmiller, and Cuff founded the business, but he was quite a character. He's quite a well-known sort of national racer and so on. You know him pretty well. What was he, was he like? I'll give you a bit more of the history, because Cuff, up until the Second World War, had been a bank clerk. In the Second World War, he and a colleague, a gentleman by the name of Horace Steele, were both in the RAF, and they were flying flights up to the Shetlands and what have you, all the way through the war, and Cuff said to me, you know, there wasn't one day when we didn't do it, no matter what the weather was like. Horace Steele had been the youngest Lord Mayor that Worthing had ever had, and 
Before the war, the bank had quite often said to Horace, so-and-so is in trouble, will you go and sort him out, please? And Horace quite often went in opening the business. Anyway, Cuff had decided, when he came to the end of his service at the Second World War, it was now time to do something different. And using his friendship with Horace, he got into the motor trade, because Horace and he worked with Cuff Miller together on the basis that Horace said, Cuff, you find half of what we need and I'll provide the other half and we'll be 50% shareholders each. Cuff Miller was created in the Thorncroft garage in Little Hampton and Cuff and Horace went on until Cuff's death. It was agreed that should one of the two partners die, then the other of the two partners would automatically get 5% of the shares so that the remaining partner had 55% and had therefore had control. And so Horace, who lived in New Zealand, quite often and sat down when he was here for the summer with me in the office and we'd talk through how the business was doing and what have you. And uh, eventually, of course, Horace died. Of Horace's 55%, 50% was put into a Swiss trust for the education of the grandchildren. 5% went back into the Steele family. So Horace had engineered a situation where nobody could dictate and have overall control. And that meant that there was a situation where Cuff's stepdaughter and stepson had 22.5% of the business. And when Cuff's stepson died, his wife inherited that. So we now had two people with 22.5% of the business, the Swiss Trust with 50%, and the Steele family with 5%. And that is the situation as it exists today. The company continues to make money. We continue to do business in the way that we've described. And I have an awful lot of respect for Horace Steele. There are other bits which I know that he got involved in where I had a great deal of respect for the way he did business. He was very, very sensible, very, very shrewd, and I was very pleased to be doing business with him. But Cuffey himself had... Um, I, I mean, he was, he was quite a character. He... he not only nurtured some young racing drivers, he was a pretty mean racing driver himself. He certainly drove some fabulous motor cars in, in his day. He had the Goodwood effort under his wing for a long, long time. He enjoyed it tremendously. He made the comment once uh, to me, he said it was really good racing with Sterling because if he went past you, he always waved his thanks that you let him through. And Cuff also had... Uh, completed the Monte Carlo Rally on four different occasions. He said, um, we were going down the Torini one day, and um, I said, no one's going to come past us here. But someone came past us, but he was on his roof, so it didn't really count. <laughs> Cuff always drove racing capris and what have you. I managed to get hold of a, a special Sierra for him, and uh, he enjoyed that for a while. Six weeks later, after he, he came to, to my office door and said... That thing is too noisy at 90 and threw the keys at me. So I ended up driving it for some time after that. He drove some classic racing cars, though. He, he did. He bought and sold all kinds of things. The most classic he drove was the car that had been built for the 1939 Le Mans, but never did race because there wasn't one that year. Indeed. And he was driving that for four and five years afterward, around Goodwood and various other locations, and uh, was very good at it. He took me round Goodwood once, and it seemed he was about five seconds a lap faster than me, and he didn't appear to be making any effort. It was just natural. That, that seems to be a sign of, of greatness sometimes. I, I know, having sat alongside Derek Bell at uh, Speed at Goodwood, 
And it all seems effortless. But, you know, I mentioned Derek Bell for a very specific reason. Cuff supported him in his earliest days. And uh, as we look across, there's one of Cuff's cars, the Marcos, which I think there was some dispute between them as to who owned which bit of it. It wasn't so much disputed, but um, I had the fortune to be talking to Derek Bell. And uh, we were talking about the fact that I had the picture and uh, he got his first drive in Cuff's Marcos. He said, yes, it was Cuff's Marcos, but it was my engine. <laughs> <laughs> but it was the sort of thing Cuff did. I mean, he did he did support a number of youngsters. I think he had some in, input into David Purley's early career as well. I'm sure he did. I mean, Cuffy was that kind of person. Mm-hmm. He would help anybody. He never, ever, as far as I'm aware, ever got upset with anybody. He just got on and did it. Mm. I mean, I can remember his philosophy, straightforward. A satisfied customer is more important than an extra profit. Well, I mean, you see, it does sound as though his his, um, his business rationale was pretty much the same as the way he went about his racing. You know, he treated the people around him with respect. Knew he perhaps wasn't always the very best, but he wasn't far off. No. I, I went out with Cuff a good few times, and uh, one day we were driving up to Guildford, and uh, we were we were coming round those bends just before you get to Guildford, and he said, oh, that's where Mike Hawthorne went over the edge. Racing through the 50s, he knew all of these people. Yes. Yeah, I mean, he, he knew Sterling, he knew Mike Hawthorne. He, was aware, he knew them all, and uh, that was Cuff. Thank you very much, Mike. And uh, I don't think either of us will see you in the next 70 years, but uh, I'm sure the business will still be here. Thanks for your time.